Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Welcome back. Episode 2. I'm Cam Connor, and I have my son Chris with me. Hello. So, Dad, we actually had a lot of great feedback from our first episode, and we actually made the the charts. Can you believe it? Well, we... No, I can't believe it, really. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying what number we made in the charts, but uh, we hit the sports chart, so that's pretty good for episode one. Some of the feedback was that they wanted the podcast to be longer, so you've committed today to have a longer podcast that will run longer than 22 minutes. Yeah, 23 minutes today. <laughs> uh, and people wanted to know how they can get in touch with you for emails or Twitter. So for email address, it's really easy. It's just viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. You can send any questions. You can send longer questions than Twitter. But my dad's on Twitter quite often, and he tries to respond to everyone, and his Twitter handle is CamConnorNHL, so feel free to tweet him anytime. So today we thought we'd cover a few topics. Everyone knows what's going on with Houston, with the horrific floodings, the loss of life, and I know, Dad, that you played in Houston, that you loved it there, so you wanted to take a few minutes to talk about Houston, what the fans are, what the people are like. Thanks, Chris. You know, I went from Phoenix to Houston, and I signed a seven-year, no-cut, no-trade contract with the Houston Arrows of the World Hockey Association. I'd gone into Houston um, as a visiting team, and I really wasn't thinking, I didn't really know what to expect going into Houston. And I can tell you those, um, I played there two years and then unfortunately the team folded after the second season. But Houston is a great, great city. And people always ask me, well, what's your favorite city? And what's, and you know, in my opinion, a favorite city, it always has to do with the people. If you meet some wonderful people, I like that city. And if, you know, your time there and you don't really make friends or you're not enjoying yourself for whatever reason, then you don't like that city. So I had great neighbors when I lived in Houston. I have great memories of the city. I know the wife and I would move back to Houston, wouldn't hesitate. We'd move back in a heartbeat. And it's unfortunate what's happening in Houston today and, uh, are definitely our thoughts and prayers are with all the people in Houston. And so what would you say the Houston fans are like when you played there? Well, it depends if you play with them or against them. So when I came in against them, and there's some articles in the paper, I think it was called the Houston Chronicle, if I remember. And when I was with Phoenix, I was, you know, the big goon and, you know, the tough guy, and they didn't like me, and the fans booed me. And then they said when they played there, they said, how... Interesting, you go from a goon to just a rambunctious forward. And so the fans were very, very passionate about their sports. Um, unfortunately, we probably had a, a base of about six to eight to 10,000 people that would come out regularly to watch our hockey games. 
they made us feel welcome in that city, but unfortunately, you know, we I think if the National League goes there, it'll sell. But the World Hockey, you know, they had success there, winning championships out of Houston, but I don't think that was enough to uh, get us over the hump. And I think uh, based on feedback from some of the Twitter users, they actually want a full episode on your memories of Houston. I know you played with Gordy Howe and the Howe brothers. So that will be a future episode for sure because you have a lot to say. Well, you know, the guys on the Houston Arrow, Arrows, they were pretty special guys. Like they were all, we all got along. There was nobody on an, on an ego trip. And, uh, and it starts with the coach. Our coach was Bill Deneen in Houston, and Bill is one of the finest individuals you could ever know as a person, never mind to have as your coach. So you're right, I have a lot of ammunition to talk about Houston. So an interesting, uh, I guess, question that you seem to get a lot is that you actually took figure skating lessons, and if you go and look on the back of your New York Rangers hockey card, you actually see a fun fact that with, I think, a picture of a figure skate uh, that says, did you know that Cam Connor actually took figure skating lessons? So my question for you is, why did you take figure skating? And two, do they actually ask you ahead of time what they can put on the back of your hockey card? Well, let's start with a hockey card. Um, no, they just write whatever they want to write. And um, it's always interesting to see what they say. And how would they have even known well, you know, that's it. I mean, they didn't ask me, but obviously somebody did their homework and asked somebody. And uh, and the reason I took figure skating is in episode one, I had mentioned that, you know, as a kid, I was always growing tall and I was uh, uncoordinated. And usually it's the smaller guys that are closer to the ice at a younger age are very coordinated and they look like a million dollars on the ice. And then the taller, lankier kids, they're definitely not coordinated yet and and they're not smooth on their feet so um i know that uh my dad i never had a brand new pair of skates until i got to the age of about 16 when i made junior hockey my dad he would uh go to the community club with me and we'd have skate exchange and then i'd get skates and he would like to he save a couple dollars so he'd get me some skates that would last two or three seasons which means they had to be a little bit too big. So I always told myself, well, maybe that's the reason my skating wasn't so smooth, one of the reasons anyway. So after my uh, first year pro, I just wanted to be one of the better players on my team. I was a high NHL draft choice. So I started thinking about it, and I said, you know, why don't I try some figure skating? So at the practice rink, I went and talked to the people that were involved with figure skating from that rink, and they told me, you should do what's called patchwork. And if you've ever been in a rink, you could see, especially the beginner skaters, I mean, you know how to skate, and, and they get in there and they do two circles on the ice that looks like the number eight. And what you do is you start at the one side of it and you push off, and they teach you how to use your shoulders to turn. And, and you use your inside edges, your outside edges. And so when you're a hockey player, at least back in my day, 
you just put on your skates, you go to the outdoor rinks, and you just start pushing. And you pick up good habits, bad habits, but you can get from A to B pretty quick. But maybe you're working harder than somebody that's figured out how to skate with less effort. And so, again, I just uh, decided that maybe, maybe it would be beneficial for me if I actually took some lessons on how to skate efficiently. And so I did the patchwork. And it definitely, I can honestly say it helped me. Um, I was a little embarrassed, though, because what am I, 21 or 22 years old, a big boy. And I think I was with 10 to 13-year-olds in my class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just shaking my head, but that's what I had to do. So that's what I did. Okay, that sounds like uh, a great answer that I don't think anyone would have predicted in terms of uh, a fighter taking figure skating, but obviously it worked for you. And just, sorry to interrupt you, another thing that just popped in my head, another thing I did that year at Phoenix, and this will be for a, a, a later podcast, but uh, I took, uh, I got hypnotized. I went all summer to a guy who would hypnotize me, and uh, he had asked me, uh, what's the last piece of equipment that you put on? And I said, I didn't wear a helmet, so I said, my gloves. And so he had me programmed that when when I put my gloves on, I, I was ready to play. But we'll make that another night. That was actually pretty interesting when you get hypnotized to play hockey. Okay, I'll write that one. I'll write that one down. But I think uh, the reason why most people are probably listening to this to this podcast is to see what you have to say about Wayne Gretzky. You were lucky enough to play with him in his rookie NHL year. I know he played in the WHA before. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you a few questions first, because I know once you start telling your stories, I won't be able to get a word in. Uh, so you and... Uh, he knows me. You and Wayne Gretzky both ended up playing for the Oilers in 7980. Correct. Uh, so how did you both end up on that team? Well, you know, I played in the WHA for four years, and um, I played against Glenn Sather um, for probably two, three of those years. And he was a coach, and I believe he was also a player in the WHA, but I may be wrong there. So he knew me, and um, the year I went to Montreal... Finished the year. That's the year we won the Stanley Cup, and the Canadians had one or four years in a row at that point. The World Hockey merged at that time, and that's when they brought in four of the NHL teams, which was, I believe, Quebec Nordiques, um, Hartford Whalers, the Edmonton Oilers, and I believe it was Winnipeg Jets. And um, so those four teams merged, and each team was allowed to protect. I want to say 15 skaters. And in Montreal, we had a powerhouse team. I mean, when you win the Stanley Cup four years in a row, it's not like today. Um, when you have free agents, your contract's up, you can go anywhere. Back in my day, they, they had Alan Eagleson, and we all know what a crook that guy was. And so he was our representative. He represented the players to the owners. So he said, oh, we got you free agency. But I think only one guy in all the years I was around that ever moved, it was Scott Stevens. The price you would pay if you went from 
team A to team B in the NHL, you had to give up the team that signed you five first-round draft choices in order to sign somebody. So, you know, that's a heck of a price to pay. So how could you say that there's free agency? So the teams in Montreal, I mean, the players stayed there for years and their whole career pretty well, the core of them. And so I knew I wasn't going to be one of the players that was protected that year. Um, it was just too strong of a team. And um, the draft, if I remember correctly, was held in Montreal, and I, I happened to be at the house. And I got a phone call from Glenn Sather, and he told me that uh, I'm on his team, and I'd be there a long time, and uh, go to Edmonton to buy a house. And he asked me, he said, you know, we got a guy here in town, in Montreal, that's sitting in a hotel room, and he doesn't know anybody, and I think you can get him out of the room, go pick him up, phone him, go pick him up, take him out for a beer. I said, absolutely. He said, it's Wayne Gretzky. And here's where he's staying, and uh, give him a call. So I phoned Wayne up, and I go pick him up outside his hotel and take him to a bar. And that's when I first met Wayne, was that day. So... We're at the bar, making small talk. We don't know each other. And so the one common denominator that he knew was that I had played in the National League for one year, and I played in the World Hockey for one year, whereas Wayne, if I'm not mistaken, had played in the WHA one season. And um, so he had asked me, he was a little nervous, he said, Cam, you've played in both leagues, is it uh, a big step between the NHL and the World Hockey, or is it pretty well on par? And uh, what I didn't know to answer Wayne's question was, you know, when you play for the Montreal Canadiens, whatever city you go into, you could be the last place team in the NHL. But when Montreal comes into town, especially the defending Stanley Cup champions, these last place teams, they rise for the occasion. So every game that I played with Montreal, every game that I watched, it was fast paced. It was good hockey. And I walked away with the impression that this is how the NHL played every game. And so to answer Wayne's question, I said, Wayne, the NHL is uh, another level above the world hockey. And uh, I said, Wayne, I know... I didn't know much about Wayne. Now, in Montreal the year before, we never mentioned Wayne's name in the dressing room. He was still, like I said, in the other league, and he's pretty young. He was he was 18 the year, I, years old the year I played with him. And um, so I said, Wayne, I know that, you know, you've been a pretty good hockey player all your life. And I said, but it's going to take you a year or two to to kind of catch on in this new league and uh, you're going to do well, but it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve for you. And I remember in all serious, he, he gave me this quizzical look like a dog. When you kind of whistle high pitch, he turns his head to the side. It was almost like that. He was looking at me like, what are you talking about? Um, and little did I know Wayne had a lot of confidence in his ability to play hockey. I had never seen him play. So, again, I told him it's going to take him a while to adjust, and uh, he kind of looked at me strange. So was I know when uh, the Oilers signed Connor McDavid, there was a big buzz around the team and the city. But was there a buzz for Wayne Gretzky to join the team? What was, what was the talk like? 
Well, um, I think Wayne, if I'm not mistaken, and again, I, I'm a little blank on that time of my life in the world hockey, but I believe Wayne went from Indianapolis over to Edmonton Oilers. Does that sound right? In the WHA? Someone can correct us. If yeah. Wrong. Yeah. And so I think the fans already knew who he was. Um, um, so anyways, make a long story short, that first year when I played with Wayne, he scored 136 points. He tied for the NHL scoring lead with Marcel Dion, but it was awarded to Marcel Dion because he uh, Marcel scored more goals. So what was he like in the locker room? Like especially the first uh, couple of months that he you know was on the team. as an 18-year-old, Kevin Lowe was 18, Mark Messier was 18, uh, Wayne Gretzky was 18. They're all polite and humble. And nice kids. I mean, they're kids. They're only 18 years old. And uh, Wayne wasn't any different. Um, you know, he was just a genuine person, and um, he was good to everybody. He reminded me a lot of Gordie Howe in the fact, you know, over the years, I played with some outstanding superstars in, with the Rangers, like Esposito and all the great Canadians and, uh, and the three names I just said. You know... The, the really superstars, the ones that aren't in there, there's a few superstars that are there on the Eagle trip. But Wayne reminded me of Gordie Howe. A lot of people wanted his autograph, for example, or their autographs. And Gordie would always, always stay, especially with the kids. He was so good to the kids. Wayne was the same way. He would stay as long as he possibly could and sign all the autographs. So Wayne at 18, he impressed me quite a bit. And it's interesting because you're one of uh, just two players that actually played with Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky. So what was it like? How could how would you compare the two on the ice? And I guess even off the ice. Well, like I think Gordie was somewhere around 48 years old when I played with him. And Wayne was 18. Um, Gordie... Well, I st- the common denominator, I mean, on the ice, they were both stars. And off the ice, they were humble. They were fun. Um, Wayne, he'd, uh, he was an 18-year-old. And he, he had lots of energy. And uh, he hung around with Kevin and, and, and Mark. They were like the three amigos. And just for the record, you know, I did not foresee that the three of those guys were going to have the kind of career that they had. Had I? I definitely would have had them over for supper a lot more than I did. <laughs> that is for sure. So, uh, just out of curiosity, did you ever see Gretzky fight? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't want to see him fight. Um, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you a little bit of insight. You know, when you're in the dressing room, you must change 200 times in front of each other. And I remember Wayne, when he was getting ready, and I looked across the dressing room. He was uh, he was 18. And, um, like, I hadn't seen him play. And this was at training camp. And I saw him, and I was saying to myself, like, he doesn't have any muscles. He's going to get broken in half out there. I said, if I hit him or some of the other boys, you get a hold of that guy, we're going to break him in two. Because usually when you look at an athlete's build, they've got muscles because that's what you get paid to do. You work out and 
And so, you know, when you play with Wayne, you realize that he didn't need to have all those muscles. He had the uncanny ability to play hockey on the ice and find the open ice when he had the puck and hang on to it and hang on to it and never put himself in a position where he was going to get crutched pretty hard. I'm sure there was times when he did get hit like everybody else, but overall, um, you know, that bill certainly didn't uh, affect his hockey. And you mentioned uh, something about a strength test that he was a part of. Well, so there were 60 players that year in Edmonton, and uh, at the typical training camp, you got to do pull-ups and weights and, and, you know, lung capacity and body fat tests. And and I just kind of chuckled because out of 60 guys, Wayne came in 60th for a strength test. Now, I'm not knocking the guy, as we all know the kind of career he had. I'm just saying, if you would have saw him in the early days, you would have thought, just like I thought, he was not, he didn't have the build of a typical hockey player, but obviously, whatever he had going for him, I wish I had more of that myself. So, do you have any uh, stories that you could share about playing with him? Well, you know, I know that Wayne, little things like when we were in the bar, because Wayne was making more than anybody else, he would always come in and buy the, a lot of the rounds and take care of people's bills when you didn't expect them to. Nor did he have to, but that was pretty nice because we're all making good money, but Wayne took care of everybody. And, uh, you know, some of the stories, what I think, it, you know, I mean, everybody that's listening, they know what Wayne's, what his, his accomplishments on the ice. So, I mean, there's really no point in talking about his achievements on the ice. Everybody knows it. Um, when I think about him off the ice, little things such as Wayne had in his contract uh, with Peter Pockington that every year he got a new vehicle. So the season was over and Wayne got a hold of me and he said, Cam, you live here year-round in Edmonton, don't you? And I, and I did, yeah. And he said, I want to fly back to Toronto. I don't want to drive. Could you keep my vehicle in your driveway? I said, sure, I can do that for you, Wayne. And so in the neighborhood that I lived in, there was lots of young children in there, and they knew I played with the Oilers. They would come over and uh, ask me if I could go play ball hockey in the street during the middle of the season. And, you know, I felt that I wanted to, but it was an obligation. I think with children on your streets, you make them feel special. And if I go and play ball hockey with these kids in the wintertime, because um, I was on the orders. If that made him feel good, then I was more than happy to do it. So I go out and play with the kids in the street. Well, what I didn't realize is now that these guys, these young kids, and I'm thinking they're like, if I remember correctly, like 9 to 13 years old, they thought we were best friends now. So it's off-season. And don't forget, we got Wayne's car in my garage, or er, in my driveway. So off-season... The, f the doorbell would ring about 8 in the morning and the wife would go down and uh, answer the door and these young kids would say, could Cam come out and play? And she'd kind of laugh and she said, well, he's still in bed. She go, They'd say, well, can we sit in Wayne's car then? So she'd go out and roll Wayne's car windows down on Wayne's vehicle 
And we'd have anywhere from four to six, six kids sitting in Wayne's car in our driveway from two to four hours just sitting there. Did he know this? No, I never did tell him. But uh, I made sure the kids weren't kicking the fronts of the seats and dashboards and, and that they behaved for sure. Do you remember what uh, kind of car this was? You know, I don't. Other people, when I've told them about this, they've said, what kind of car was it? And I... You know, I think it was a Chrysler of some sort. I just don't remember. Or Ford. I think Pocket did own a Ford dealership, so I don't know. But I thought it was pretty cute. And uh, I was thinking I should have charged the parents uh, two bucks an hour per kid for babysitting and maybe sold them some popcorn. So then, quite a few years later, you received a call from Wayne Gretzky's... uh, the author of one of his books that's coming out. And they actually asked you to share some stories uh, with the author that could maybe be included in Wayne's book. So were you surprised to even get the call to to contribute? And uh, was that an honor? Well, it was an honor. And, you know, I was just like, you know, pretty minor in Wayne's life. Wayne always makes me feel pretty good when he comes to Edmonton. He'll come over and say hello, and we'll talk. And he still makes you feel special, even though, you know, you're, like I said, a pretty minor in his life. Um, but, yeah, so to get that phone call, um, just to say if I had any, remember any stories, um, the one that he put in the book, in Wayne's book, was when I had just mentioned about what we used to do is – Conditioning in sports is important. Like, it's number one. And uh, wrestling is a form of working out. I mean, so every day, pretty well every day, we had a very tiny lounge. Um, it was in just one separate room with some couches and a TV. And So we would have myself and Lee Fogelin used to tag team against Semenko and Mark Messier. And so I mentioned this to the lady who was the author of Wayne's book. I told the story how we would go in there and we would go at it. And um, Fogey is one strong boy. And Semenx, you know, you put him on the weights. He couldn't lift that much. But when you start wrestling him or fight him, that strength comes out of somewhere. Oh, my Lord. And Messier, at 18... um, you know, when I was growing up as a, as a teenager, I used to have to pile over 2,000 cinder blocks a day and I uh, had to put them on these pallets and uh, use my left arm. And I don't know what, what a cinder block weighs, but my left arm was going to fall off. And then I had to use my right and I, I had to shovel wet sand. And anyways, I had hard physical jobs. And so I got pretty strong. Plus, with my buddy Roddy Piper and I, we would uh, use the weights quite a bit. So I was a strong boy. And when I took on Messier in the dressing room, I, and, and I'm going to say, you know, Messi was 18, so I was about, say, 24, more or less. So I had a few years on him. But boy, at 18, was that guy strong. And I had to do everything I could to get him down and... Uh, you know, I asked him. I was with Mark. Um, I talked to Mark at uh, Dave Semenko's funeral. We met after. And I asked him, I said, how did you get so strong at 18? And Mark said that uh, 
you know, at about 15, he started playing with the weights, and he said he did it quite a bit. And um, I, I could tell. And I think he told me he played uh, his playing weight. Uh, I don't remember for sure, but it was, you know, I didn't realize. I think we played at 215 or 220, so he turned into, there's no doubt his nickname Moose was appropriate. But, again, that, that was the story that went into the book is just how the four of us used to go in there and uh, uh, scrap all the time. So this might be a pretty obvious question, but out of all the players either that you played with or that you've seen in the NHL, where would you rank Wayne Gretzky? Well, that's kind of subjective. Uh, it's it's. Uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong. Um, you know, there's no doubt you can't take away anything that Wayne's ever done point-wise, um, championship, awards. But I would personally... I can't say he was number one or number two or number three. And it all depends, obviously, who you ask. To be on the safe side, I would say from day one in the NHL that Wayne Gretzky would be, you know, in the top five. Now, what does that really mean? You know, you get guys that played in Pittsburgh. Fans in Pittsburgh will say Mary Lemieux was the best of all time. Did you ever see him on the ice? Or you might get guys that saw Gordie Howe in his prime, you know, when there was only six teams um, out of Detroit that would say, no, Gordie Howe, he was the best by far. Or you go to Boston Bruins, and they would say, did you ever see Bobby Orr in his prime? He could win a hockey game on his own with that skating ability. He was a modest guy. And, you know, Don Cherry always says Bobby Orr, right? Um, and then if you look at today, you may get individuals that say Connor McDavid's going to beat everybody and be the number one. So it's it's pretty hard. It's just an opinion and there's no right or wrong. So be on the safe side, Chris. I would say that Wayne would probably be the top five, probably the top three. There, you just, you know... I think it's just a personal opinion. And it's interesting now that you get to see, and I think you've met a couple times, um, Connor McDavid play, and how would you compare the two? Well, I would say between Gretzky and Connor McDavid, I would honest, I, I can see a parallel between the two of them. Wayne Gretzky, now this is just my opinion. I don't know if anybody else shares it. I really do believe that Messier and Kevin Lowe and others would never have had the kind of career that they had without Wayne Gretzky in their life. These guys hung around with him. They learned how Wayne thought, how he approached the game, how how to win, um, what you needed to do to win. Um, he made other people better that played on his team. Uh, and then you look at Connor McDavid. I don't believe this Edmonton Oilers team would have had the success it did this season, and it will have in this new coming season. Um, if that team didn't have Connor McDavid, I think uh, we'd still be in the rebuilding stage. He has made everybody around them winners. They want to play good. They want to be just like Connor McDavid. And they know when you've got somebody like that in the lineup, you have to pick up your game. 
you want to play on a team that has a superstar like Wayne Gretzky, like a Connor McDavid. They will lead you to the Stanley Cup. And when you get those kind of leaders, you have to step up your game or you get left behind. And um, the owner of the Oilers, you should see the dress room. My Lord, I was with Glenn Sather after Dave Semenko's funeral and we walked into the Oilers dressing room, which is the first time I've been in there. I asked Glenn. It was unbelievable. I said, Glenn, is there any other dress room like this in the NHL? And Glenn said, not even close. I can't even... I mean, I could go on and talk about it, but you'd have to see it to do it justice. It is unbelievable. Well, you brought it up, so now we want to know what's in this dressing room. Well, okay, I'll just tell you a little bit. When you walk in the, the main doors from the rink, you can go to the left and wave your hand in front of this blue door and it opens up and you go into the change area where they sit down after they've changed and they got your gear on and coach talks to them. If you don't veer to the left and you go to the right, you walk in there and you will see a lounge area. Do you remember I talked earlier about the lounge that the Edmonton Oilers had? Um, back in my day, it was just you know, like a half the room size of a hotel room. It wasn't very big. So you walk in there and it's like walking into a five-star hotel. The lounge area when you walk in, it's got a two-story fireplace. It is unbelievable. You, you kind of don't even know you're in a dressing room. They got individual uh, uh, sinks for the guys, individual sinks with toiletries uh, and their own mirror. Um, you walk in and they got like a restaurant bar area where they feed the guys. You go into another area. They got a miniature hockey rink inside there with NHL glass and boards and uh, you go in your street clothes and your boots and you can practice shooting into a net. <coughs> Excuse me, I've never seen that before ever in a dressing room. You get two or three other rooms that have got weights and stretching room. It's got a second level where it's like you go to a fitness place and you've got uh, the stationary bikes and the treadmills overlooking the dressing room area. And, uh, and it is so big in there. I think Kevin Lowe told me it's like 33,000 square feet. And it is so big. I, I lost my wife in there. I didn't even know. I couldn't find her. It's so big. <laughs> and so so that's what that dressing room looks like. So I think we'll wrap this up pretty soon. Wait, I got to say one more thing. Okay. You just made me think of something. Okay. So, you know, when I talk about, you know, our dressing room, when I was with the orders in NHL, we had that tiny little lounge. One of the other things I remember is, you know, when you get banged up, we had these little tiny, tiny jacuzzis in the dressing room, and they were in a tub, if I'm not mistaken. And we said, we got to have like a steam room or a sauna room just to kind of chill out. And we asked Pockenden if he could pull one in. And he said, absolutely not. And so he made each of us put in 20 or 40 bucks on the team. And we had to contribute, um, you know, to putting in a steam room in that dressing room. And so, Pockington, you owe me 40 bucks because you guys traded me before I got to use uh -huh. it. Okay. So, you mentioned Kevin Lowe a few times. And I know that's someone that you've actually kept in touch with over the years. But I know you have a really funny, uh, interesting Kevin Lowe story. And then we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Well, 
it's 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 I don't know if the word's interesting, but it's a real life story. Um, so the guys were on the road. I was hurt. Kevin Lowe was hurt, and a fellow named Peter Driscoll, who was a pretty tough boy, he was hurt. And um, the we used to play out of what's called the Northlands Coliseum, and uh, the ice was being used, so we needed to skate while the team was on the road. And Mark Messier's dad ran a junior team in St. Albert. So we got in Peter's vehicle, and Peter had an Eldorado Baritz, it was called. Very nice vehicle, very nice caddy. And he was so proud of that, he babied that machine. So we got changed at the Northlands, and we put our full gear on, with shoulder pads and elbow pads, and we just carried our skates and sticks. And we went and skated for an hour and a half with the junior team in St. Albert, and we're driving back to Northland to change and shower. And we, we still got the shoulder pads on, so we're looking pretty big sitting in our vehicle. We come up to a light downtown Edmonton, and these, they look like pumps. They pulled up beside us, and they rolled their windows down. And Peter rolls his down, and they start chirping them, and Peter said something to them. So they got out of the vehicle. Now, I can fight. I know how to fight and I've had ways too many. Peter knows how to fight. And Kevin was a tough boy too. So they get out and they start touching Peter's car. And Peter says to him, you touch that effing car one more time and we're going to get out and we're going to go. So they touched again. So we got to back Peter up. So Kevin and I, we get out of the vehicle. And we look like monsters, man. We've got hockey gear on with big shoulders. And I thought that was going to scare these guys away. But they, maybe they were nervous on the inside. They didn't show it, but they kind of stood there. We, Kevin and I, we kept quiet because we were so mature. And uh, we just kind of let things unfold. And as it worked out, they eventually, you know, calmed down. And uh, they didn't do it in the Peter's car. And they got back in. That was something that we chuckled about for the rest of the week is us and our hockey gear. Imagine that. Get this. What if we got beat up by these guys? That would have been hilarious. Those are some uh, brave punks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so going forward for the next episode, we actually have uh, a few topics that we could consider. I know that George McVie's kind of in the news lately as the GM of the new Las Vegas team. And he's probably one of your closer hockey friends back in New York and other teams. So that that would be an interesting discussion and where you see um, Las Vegas heading. Uh, we could also, I know a lot of people have asked about Roddy Piper, and I think once we decide to cover that, that's probably a four-part <laughs> series of podcasts where I, you could just go on and on about growing up with Roddy Piper throughout his life and ultimately passing away. Well, that's like, I, I'm going to say we hung around for 45 years, so I'll, I'll try to condense that for you. And I got to ask, did you learn how to fight because of Roddy Piper? No, not because of him, but I think I got better. We would put the gloves on, and I didn't know he was the light heavyweight box champ in Toronto one time. At least he told me he was. And, and it's obvious that he boxed and... Uh, um, so, you know, Rod and I, we did. Now, the only time that I could take him in a, in a, in a boxing match is when I put him on skates. And there's some more stories about that. Yeah. 
And then I also was thinking a couple more. You have the New York Rangers because uh, since you've been on Twitter, you've actually connected to a few of your old teammates, Ron Dugay and Tom Laidlaw. So I'm sure you have stories to share from mm-hmm. your time there. And then also uh, being able to play with Gordie Howe uh, and his passing and also knowing his brother. So we'll, uh, we'll see what everyone wants to wants you to talk about. Right. And, you know, those are topics that uh, when we talk about Gordie Howe, um, <clears throat> I have great memories of Gordie. Um, he was in Edmonton uh, on his 80, I think he died at 88 years old. He was 82 in Edmonton, and I connected with Gordie and Marty Howe. And uh, <clears throat> I have great memories and, and a lot of stories about Gordie that uh, I would love to share with you. He was a wonderful, sincere person. And uh, my time in Houston, again, that's how we started this podcast. My time in Houston was was second to none. And, you know, it was my neighbors and the people around me that have given me such positive impressions of that city as well as my teammates. Okay, Dad. Well, uh, it looks like you doubled your time for this podcast. So thank you for that. Well, it's it's getting easier as I go along. So uh, until next week, I'm Chris. I'm Cam.